Welcome to Grace Baptist. Okay, okay, I think we can. I think we finally got it. Okay, let me try the third time. Welcome to Grace Baptist Church as we worship at our temporary venue here at the Chapel of the Holy Spirit. And to my beloved family and friends in Christ, a good afternoon and welcome. You realize we did have a number of things happen today, so let us now prepare our hearts as we listen to God speak to us through His Word, because this is by far the more important thing. Let us pray again in the words of an old saint. Blessed Lord God, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have you ever reached out to a friend who was in obvious need of help only to have them turn you away? Or have you yourself had times when you needed help but when the offer of assistance came, you refused the help? Do you tell others, I'm okay despite the fact that you are not and you try to solve all your problems by yourself. The thing is, my friends, you and I tend towards self-sufficiency. There's almost a bent in us, in our culture, towards self-sufficiency. We think we don't need any outside help. Please take note, I'm not advocating unreasonable neediness here. I mean, a certain level of being able to take care of yourself is necessary and is part of growing up. I mean, we all hope that our children, our teenagers, will grow up to be able to care for themselves. I mean, how many of you will want your children to rely on you for life? No, right? But when self-sufficiency becomes a prideful reliance only on yourself, and when we hold on to this view, the view we hold on is contrary to the gospel. The Bible tells us that after the fall, you and I, we are broken. We cannot simply fix ourselves. We need outside help. We need someone who is totally sufficient to come and help us. And this is where we turn to today, to Paul's letter to the Colossians, where we see that Christ is supreme over all things and Christ is sufficient for all of life. And we see how this plays out in the life of the church. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to me with me to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 to 17. But before we jump in and look at what Paul is saying to us in these verses, let's look at the backdrop to this letter. Paul here, he's writing to Christians living in a small city of Colossae. And it was, this letter was probably written around AD 62, when, while Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul writes in this letter to battle false teaching that the church was facing. 
you see there were some people who taught, some teachers who taught that Jesus Christ is not enough for salvation. That you still needed religion with all its rules of what you can eat and cannot eat and the keeping of feast days so that you can be saved. But that's not all. There were yet others who thought that in addition to Jesus, you needed a kind of hyper-spirituality. That you needed some kind of mystic knowledge, mysticism, and worship of angels. And Paul, being the teacher that he is, he counters all of that by putting the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ for all of life front and centre. Christ is all in all. Jesus Christ is all that matters. And he encourages the church to live out this truth in the community life of the local church. In chapters 1 and 2 of the letter to the Colossians, Paul talks about what God has done for us, that our sins have been forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross. He explains what the gospel is and he tells us that Christ is supreme over salvation and all of creation. He tells us that Christ is sufficient for our salvation and that we have new life in Christ Jesus. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul goes on to explain how we are to live out this new life. Specifically, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, the verses just before the passage we're looking at today. Paul tells us that as Christians, we have been joined, we have been united to Christ and raised to new life. And Paul goes on then to encourage the church, because we have this new life, because you have this new life, they are then to lift it out in this new community that they find themselves in, the new community called the church. And then Paul goes on in verses 5 to 11, urging them, urging this new community to put off vices that hinder life in the community. They are then encouraged to put on virtues that fosters community as part of a new life in Christ in verses 12 and following. So please follow along with me as I read the New American Standard translation of the Bible. Paul, this is what Paul tells us in verses 12 to 17. Verses 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him 
to God the Father. Paul here encourages Christians as a new people of God to put on love and live in thankfulness as an expression of worship to God. Christians, you are to put on a new set of behaviours that are characterised by love and thankfulness as an act of worship to God. There's a social report released by the New Zealand government and the conclusion of, conclusion of the report states, cultural identity is important for people's sense of self and how they relate to others. A strong cultural identity can contribute to people's overall well-being. Well, they, they took one whole report to just say this, who you are, your identity, determines how you feel, how you act, and how you interact with others. What you believe to be your identity will influence the way you behave. And we saw this as well. I mean, one example we saw was the response of the Japanese in the wake of the 2011 tsunami and the subsequent nuclear accident in Tohoku, Japan. You know, I remembered watching the news reports and I felt a kind of sympathy and sadness for them. But in addition, there was one thing I admired. Do you remember? I admired the ordered, the civil, the calm response of the people to the disaster. As the world watched, the Japanese responded, they responded to the tragedy out of the national identity, out of their national identity as Japanese, with respect, with discipline, and almost zen-like calmness. What you believe your identity will to be will influence the way you behave. And as Christians, as Christians, because of our new identity in Christ, we are to live and respond in a certain way. And Paul writes this in verses 12 to 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all this thing, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And what do we see here? Before Paul goes on to what we call the imperatives or what we are to do in the Christian life, what does he do first? He reminds the Colossian church and us of our identity. Before he tells us to put on the virtues, the virtues that the church is to embrace, he reminds us of who we are in Christ. And we see this here. Paul writes, so, or another way to put it is, therefore, therefore, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he calls the church, he calls us chosen of God. Chosen of God. This very same description, this description was used for the Israelites in the Old Testament. And he takes this description this, this chosen people and applies it to the believers in Colossae. Because of this, because of the redemption brought by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, all of us who trust in Jesus Christ and therefore participate in his death 
and resurrection by faith, we can now be identified as God's own people. Furthermore, this new community of God is holy and beloved. Holy and beloved by God. And in this context here, holy does not describe moral behaviour, but rather it means that believers, you and I, we have been set apart as God's people for God's purposes. In the Old Testament, to be chosen by God is to be separated and holy in His sight. For you are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. We see this in Deuteronomy 7.6. So not only is the church at Colossae set apart for God, the believers are also beloved by God. They are dearly loved by God. Can you ever imagine this? You and I, those of us who believe, we are set apart by God, for God, and we are dearly beloved by God. And it's because of this new identity that you and I are to behave in a manner consistent with our new identity. Paul tells the church at Colossae, they are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. They are to put on, they are to adopt virtues that build up and maintain a community in the church characterized by love. You know, sometimes when we read you in, in the Bible, we tend to think it's singular, it means individual. But here, when Paul was saying this, he is addressing the whole church in Colossae. They are to adopt these virtues to build up the community. Okay? They are to imitate God in being merciful and compassionate. They are to live out the kindness they have already experienced from our compassionate God. They are to adopt humility and have a posture of someone who submits to the Lordship of Christ. They are to be gentle, the opposite of acting in anger. They are to be patient. They are to tolerate and show forbearance of others. As Christians chosen by God, holy and beloved, they are to seek to put on these five virtues that will build community in the church. But Paul doesn't stop there. I mean, in many of Paul's letters, he's so logical. He goes on to tell you how you have to do this. Paul provides the means then through which this virtue can be practiced. He tells the Colossian church in verse 13 to keep bearing with one another and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Do you get this? Christians are to bear and tolerate one another. However, Paul goes beyond just this. I mean, if Paul just stops here and tells us, you know, you have to bear and tolerate one another, most of us say, okay, fine, Paul, I can do this. You know, after all, some people are best loved at a distance, so I will tolerate them. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul gives an example and tells the church specifically what they are to do. Specifically in a case when they have a complaint or grievance against another in the church, 
They are to do what? They are to forgive each other. Just as God has forgiven us through the death of His Son, we are to forgive others. You see, for Paul, to live out the practice of forgiveness is to live out the gospel as embodied in Christ's death on the cross. God's forgiveness of sinners like you and me serves as a basis of human forgiveness. And our way to put this, in response to the sufficiency of God's work through Christ to forgive us, we are to imitate Christ in the building of a community based on God's grace manifested on the cross. And Paul ends this list of virtues with pointing to the significance of love in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. Paul tells us, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. I mean, you need to get the imagery here. The image that Paul draws on is a clothing metaphor. He has really talked about putting off, you know, the imagery of taking off clothes, old clothes. And in this case, he's used this when describing removing the vices listed in verses 5 to 11. In verses 12 to 14, he again employed the same clothing metaphor. He speaks of putting on, the imagery of putting on new clothes. In this case, to assume the virtues that build community. And Paul ends with yet the same imagery of putting on love. But get this, it's a picture of love as a kind of outer cloak that holds all the virtues together. Love then is pictured as the binding, sustaining force that holds believers together in a community. So my friends, the question to you is, are you living out your identity in Christ? Are you behaving in a manner that reflects unity and love in the church? Are you living in ways that will build community in Grace Baptist Church? Or are we practicing loving others at a distance? Are you still bearing grudges and refusing to forgive others? I was away last weekend. I was in Perth, Australia, the last past weekend. I was there attending a wedding of a dear friend of 17 years, and it was a great wedding. It was a great wedding. Uh, not so much for the food, but I really love just walking along Swan River. Okay? But during the wedding dinner, during the wedding dinner, I had a conversation with a Malaysian acquaintance who I just met that very night. He's now a permanent resident in Singapore. And when the conversation around the table came to Singapore, guess what? The complaints started to flow in from the Singaporeans at the table. You know, we complain about pressure from schools and work. We complain about our standards of living. We complain about stresses and pressures from you know, just living life in Singapore and how everything is so crowded. And my Malaysian friend said something which stopped all the Singaporeans in the midst of our conversations. He, gave, he said something which gave us pause to think. He said this. He said that Singaporeans, you guys are too, you tend to be too hard on yourself. 
And he told us this, he had no complaints, but on the other hand, he was thankful for living in Singapore and grateful for the opportunities he had been given. He was thankful for what he had already been given. And I thought to myself, wow, what a good sermon illustration. I have to use it someday. No, not, not true. What he did was it, it gave me pause. And seriously, I confess that his remark caused me to think very hard about why I harbour a complaining spirit. And Paul deals with this because Paul ends this section with a summary series of encouragements that affirms the significance of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. You see this? Because once we embrace Christ's supremacy and sufficiency, this leads to a thankful heart of, and worshipful heart. He tells us to give thanks to God because of the gospel. And giving thanks is an antidote to our complaining spirit. Follow with me again as Paul writes, as we see what Paul writes in verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. The first exaltation, the first thing Paul urges the church in Colossae is in verse 15, the first part of verse 15. He says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. If you, are, if you remember this, remember what Paul says in Romans 5.1. He tells us there that therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, because we have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. But he doesn't stop there. It's not just peace with God that he's talking about. But it tells us that we need to let this peace rule in your hearts. What Paul is doing here is he's drawing a concept of the Pax Romana or Roman peace. Remember, this is first century. So this is a concept that first century readers will be familiar with. Rome had conquered much of the known land and they enforced peace by military might. However, the means through which the rule of Christ's peace is realized is by the blood of the cross. We see this in Colossians 1.20 and not by military might. As Christians, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ and this peace should rule in our hearts. However, this peace should extend more than just the individual. As Douglas Moore writes, the gospel is inescapably individual in its focus. Each of us on our own is called by God and responds in faith on our own. But get this, yet at the same time, the gospel is inescapably corporate. We are called along with other people with whom we make one body. 
So therefore, we have peace with God. We are safe, but we are safe to a community. That is the church. We are called in one body. And just as peace rules in our hearts, this peace should be expressed in the church as well. And how are we to encourage this peace to be expressed in our church? Paul goes on and urges us to be thankful. You are to give thanks to God because of the gospel. Paul writes in the second half of verse 15 to verse 16, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, and with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We are called to be thankful. And how can we be thankful? We can be thankful when we let the word of Christ dwell within us. Here, the word of Christ refers to the message of the Messiah, refers to the message of Christ, the Savior. It refers to the good news of the gospel. The means to draw out, to evoke thankfulness is to richly let, to let the gospel richly dwell within you. And we do this, and we do this with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. We are to teach and this word has a more positive meaning here of instruction. And we are to admonish. It has a more corrective meaning here of warning. So what are we to do? We are to, with wisdom, wisely, instruct and warn one another. We are to teach one another the truths of the gospel to build one another up. We are to admonish and warn, and warn one another with the gospel when we fail, when we sin. And what's the means by which we are to do this? With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Remember that Paul was ministering largely to an illiterate society. Ordinary people couldn't actually read or write during his time. And the way of teaching then was by oral instructions. And the best way then to teach is to sing the teaching to one another. During the time of the Reformation in the 1500s and onwards, congregational hymn singing was also recovered as a means of teaching Christians biblical truths. And we do know that singing not only has a way of helping us remember things that we learn, but it serves also to move our hearts. So we are to let the gospel dwell in our hearts by instructing one another through singing to one another about the truths of the gospel. And when we do so, we will sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. You see, the result, my friends, is when we do this, we will move in our whole inner being to praise and give thanks to God. Remembering what God has really done for us in the gospel will result in thankful hearts. And thankfulness to God will be the gel that brings the expression of peace in the church. Finally, Paul concludes in verse 17 that as we give thanks to God because of the gospel, we worship God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. 
Paul now goes beyond congregational singing. He tells us that a life of worship and thanksgiving should extend comprehensively to all of life in word or deed. We are to submit in thankful worship to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all of our life. The act of giving thanks involves everything that we as believers do. When we give thanks to God, we are doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks is to worship God. And because Christ's Lordship extends over everything, everywhere, we are to give thanks in all things. Can you imagine that? Not only giving thanks in church, but in all of life, we have to give thanks as we eat, as we drink, as we speak to one another, we have to give thanks to God. But why is thanksgiving so hard for us? Why is thanksgiving so hard for us? In particularly, I mean specifically for Singaporeans. Because you see, thanksgiving runs counter to our brand towards self-sufficiency. Thanksgiving is an antidote to our sin of self-sufficiency. As one commentator, David Powell, writes, in biblical terms, to insist on one's self-sufficiency is an idolatrous act. To give thanks, by contrast, is to acknowledge one dependence on the Creator and thus transfer the centre of one's concern to God. This understanding of thanksgiving as a humble act of admitting one's insufficiency, of one's inadequacy, is also recognized by psychologists who consider ingratitude as a sign of narcissism, even in impersonal relation, interpersonal relationship. He quotes the psychologist there, to thank someone acknowledges our need to have been helped or enriched in the first place. Although those of us with predominantly narcissistic concerns may go through the motions of thanking, we frequently resist expressing wholehearted appreciation since that will acknowledge our previous insufficiency of some sort and insult to a grandiose self. So what it says in short is this, when you give thanks, you admit that you are insufficient and you're inadequate. And for those of us who are so consumed with self, we are not able to do that. So my question to us is this, do we give thanks in all things? Do we give thanks in all things in order to battle our self-sufficiency? Do we give thanks even in difficult times? Even when we are thankless, when we are thankless, do we turn to remembering the gospel? How can we as a church help one another better remember the gospel so that it results in thankfulness in the hearts of one another? So what? What now? Paul encouraged Christians as new people of God to put on love and live in thankfulness as expression of worship to God. You and I are to put on a new set of behaviours that are characterised by love and thankfulness as an act of worship to God. So, so what? What now? How can we do this? How can we overcome our natural tendency to self-sufficiency how can we apply these truths into the life of the church? 
Firstly, you live a life of thanksgiving. And how do we do so? How do we do so? When we gather as a church on Sunday, we should be singing songs that remind us of the gospel. And this is where I give thanks to God for Deacon Lapming and the worship ministry team. They have worked hard every week to select and choose songs that will help us as a church sing the truths of the gospel. And for our part, as our, our part, as a community that is the church, we should sing the songs attentively. We should sing the songs attentively, listening out for the truths of the gospel. And who knows, my friends, as we do so, we may find our hearts strangely warm as we remind ourselves again through songs, the great truths of the gospel. And with our hearts warm, I'm sure we'll sing with even greater enthusiasm and thankfulness to God. Besides seeing the truths of the gospel, I think there's a secondary application for us in order to remind each other of the gospel when we gather. So when you gather in whatever groups you find yourself in during the week, be it women's Bible study or YACG or care groups or even your one-on-one discipling or small group discipling, or you can even be just meeting up over a meal, we, are to, we need to remind each other and point each other to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by doing so, cultivate and grow thankfulness in the hearts of one another. Secondly, you are to receive and extend grace and forgiveness. Do not believe our, cultural, our culture's anti-gospel narrative. You are not self-sufficient. In and of ourselves, we are not okay. We need help outside ourselves for the forgiveness of our sins. Go to the all-supreme and all-sufficient Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness for your sins, for your failures. Acknowledge your dependence on God. And then extend this forgiveness and grace to the community that is Grace Baptist Church. Practice asking for forgiveness from others that you have wronged. If you are a parent, ask for forgiveness from your children when you exasperate them. I know it's difficult. I'm speaking to Asians here. Asian parents are never wrong, right? (laughs) Yes, William, yeah. Asian parents are never wrong. But if you look just a few verses down, that's what Paul tells the Colossian church in uh, chapter chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the letter to the Colossians. But I'm not going to let the children go. If you are a child, ask for forgiveness from your parents if you have disobeyed them. Practice extending forgiveness. If you have a complaint because you have been offended, forgive the offender. It's difficult, but forgive the offender. Forgive them because the Lord God has forgiven you through Jesus Christ. In conclusion, when we trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we receive a new life. We receive new life and a new identity. And we are to live out this new life, this new identity out in the community of the local church by adopting some new behaviors. And when we remember the gospel, we will grow thankfulness in our hearts. And this thankfulness is the antidote to our self-sufficiency. And this thankfulness and gratitude will motivate our virtuous 
behavior. And as we do this, we'll bring worship and pleasure to God. I think we still have a little bit of time. Uh, before we end, let us spend the next three to five minutes in prayer as a church community to pray God's word into one another's life. So please use the two following two questions as a guide for your prayers. The first one, give thanks to God that through Jesus Christ we are forgiven of our sins and formed into a new people of God, holy and beloved. The second prayer, pray for each other that will put on behaviours that is consistent to identity as a holy and beloved people of God. Behaviours that reflect unity and love that will build community here at Grace Baptist Church. Take the next one or two minutes to pray and then I'll close us in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ and how his work on the cross has brought forgiveness of sins and has redeemed us to new life. We ask that as a church, we will live out this new life as a new community, as people chosen by you, holy and beloved. Remind us daily of the truths of the gospel and do a work, we pray, in our hearts and affections so that we are thankful for all that you have done for us. Motivate us to worship you in all of our lives, remembering that Jesus Christ is all that matters. Pray, we pray this in our Redeemer's name, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ.